to Good People, Cool Things, the podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. I'm your host, Joey Held, and today's guest is Brad Gage, who is a host, writer, and MC. His hosting credits include content for ABC, Hulu, Full Screen, Mercedes, and Social Club TV. He also hosted the podcast Explain Things to Me, which was one of iTunes' best of 2015 podcasts, and he was named one of the new faces of 2019 in the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. Currently, Brad hosts the web series Real Feels, which focuses on masculinity and self-improvement and having those conversations that we certainly need to be having. And you know what? This podcast is one of those conversations because it is covering just about everything under the sun. We're talking about Brad's career as a host, as a podcaster, as an actor, his worst acting gig. We nerd out over drums because we've both played drums. We both love drums. They're fantastic. We're talking 90s one-hit wonders. We're going to have a link to a 90s playlist that Brad has. We're talking Beatles songs. We've got so much good stuff in here. You'll definitely want to stick around for the entire episode, which I hope you're normally doing anyway. Let's 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 not leave halfway through. This isn't like Titanic, where it's a three-hour show where you need an intermission in between. If you'd like to get in touch with Good People Cool Things, you can do so a couple different ways. Feel free to send an email, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com, or reach out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at GPCT Podcast. And hey, you know what? It's getting cold outside. So why not head over to the Good People Cool Things shop, which you can find right on the site. There's hoodies to keep you warm. There's hats to keep that head of yours all cozied up, all nestled with the heat. It's wonderful. And of course, there's t-shirts, wall art, mugs, a whole bunch of other stuff. Pour yourself some hot cocoa, curl up, and let's listen to this conversation with Brad. I'd love for you to give everyone listening your elevator pitch, but I also want to hear the elevator that we're on while you're doing it. My elevator pitch for what? For you as a, as a person. My elevator you, pitch, yeah. and we're talking, uh, how many floors are we talking about here? Uh, let's say uh, 18. 18 floors, okay. Yeah. So um, I'm Brad Gage, um, and uh, ding! Okay, so that's the first floor. <laughs> I am uh, a host, a writer, and uh, uh, working on being uh, a real advocate for a type of ding, um, new masculinity. Um, and, and I'm, I'm doing a lot of research and doing some writings on it and, and making videos. Ding. Um, and so, uh, I'm going to skip all the rest of the dings, but I, I, I will tell you because I know that's going to get annoying to the listeners, but, uh, the rest of the way after floor four is a silent elevator. I am a guy who, who, who has for a long time probably done too many things professionally to really hone in on on things um, in a focused way and make big headway. I've I've done a lot of acting. I've done a lot of uh, live comedy. Uh, I was a musician for a little bit. I've been in some bands. So many different things. And now I'm finally at the spot where I can really make a difference, do the big work, as I call it. And that big work is communicating and and working with men to open up and be vulnerable about our masculinity um, and that can range from just talking about our emotions not keeping them in um, to really creating a more empathetic 
world uh, for relationships with women. And so I'm, I'm just learning how to do that exactly, how to, how to communicate in a way that is not uh, shaming of men, that is not, um, you know, uh, attacking men. Uh, it's more working in a collaborative sense with men the same way that I hope uh, men in general can work in a collaborative sense with women um, in general moving forward. And I think, and I think now is a great time for that type of work. Absolutely. Was there, first of all, uh, you know, applause to the commitment of the dings. I feel like most people just bypass that element to it. Um, well, how, what, what, what other noises do people do? I mean, it's elevators. It's, it's rarely a noise. It's more just a descriptor of, the type of elevator it is someone asked for extra floors because they tend to ramble on and then gave a very succinct answer so i guess we were on a, an express elevator there uh some had uh, like glass openings so you can see everything going around you someone actually had an elevator in their home and so they just said they'd use that one at you know one story or two stories i guess between who the first had an and second floor in their home was it the the person who started comedy central no, but he he probably has uh, like a firefighter's pole or something. Uh, He's probably been in something his goofy like that. Yes, yes. Uh, it was a, a country musician and initially had had it uh, due to an injury um, and just to make it easier for herself and her dog to get around. They both had various injuries, and they uh, and you know after recovering, it's like you got an elevator in your house. You'll probably still use it sometimes. Like, why not? I do wonder about that, though, because I'm sure it's much slower. Oh, it's got to be. I, I picture it like the, um, I mean, I know this isn't really an elevator. It's more of like a mechanical de- uh, wheelchair device. But if you uh, are an Office fan, if you remember the episode where Jack Black uh, is like lusting after an older woman, it's like a movie within the show. And she's trying to, like, get away on that slow, like, motorized. Uh, I, what's the technical term yeah, for that? Like the, a wheelchair? The wheelchair, wheelchair uh, stair carrier. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. I imagine it's about that speed. Like, it's pretty slow, but. Yeah. And, and the worst part of elevators is the awkward waiting. This and is, I, I, I believe I've told this story uh, on a podcast before. I don't remember if it was this one, but. I was in a work trip um, in Atlanta a couple of years ago, and you know it was a, like a Hilton hotel, a standard standard chain hotel, but like eight or nine floors. I, I am on like five or six, like somewhere in the middle. Hit the elevator. I'm waiting for a little bit, and uh, doors open up. It's crowded. I get in. I'm standing there. Doors close, and then I notice, hey, we're not moving. And I look, and no button has been pressed, and. I'd like reach over and hit the lobby button. And then someone in the back was like, oh, that was a good idea. And it like, I had so many follow-up questions of, (laughs) did this group all know each other? And they all just got on and no one pushed it. Is it like a lot of different strangers all got on? How long had they been waiting? Because I assumed they weren't moving until I called the elevator and then it would go down to my floor. But like, it was it blew my mind. It's like one of my favorite elevator experiences. I mean, it, I, my guess would be that they were like a top floor, and elevators do kind of automatically go places. They're like set, 
in their in their coding to go to certain places if you know if nothing is pushed and i think they probably were on the top floor all got on and started moving but it is kind of funny that uh yeah what do you like where are you guys going (laughs) (laughs) they're just there for the ride they don't have a destination they're just hanging out and for that many people because here's the thing when when you walk into a crowded elevator and you're the person right next to the panel you always look at the panel Mm -hmm. and and then you know oh well maybe somebody didn't push the thing and then you're kind of the you know the captain of the panel there was no captain there was no captain no and no then I, I hopped panel. in. I said, I am the captain now. And yes. I pushed it. And I wonder how they, Bark Dodd Abdi's yeah. doing. I wonder if he's, <laughs> he was in, uh, he was, he he showed up in Blade Runner. And then I haven't seen him since. I haven't heard too much about him. Hmm. That's a good uh, homework assignment for after this. <laughs> we'll find out. Maybe he's a we'll listener. Who knows? Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. If you are, hello. <laughs> <laughs> now you were talking about your show, Real Feels. And said that now is a good time for it to be made. Was there a certain, like, one specific thing where you're like, okay, I got to do something about this? Or is it just, like, the way the culture and climate in the world has been? Obviously, in a pandemic year, there's high stress levels everywhere, and there's a lot of of stuff going on. Um, So was it just kind of like a culmination of all of that? Or can you, like, point to a specific moment where you were like, that's it. I got to start a show about this. Well, I think, you know, the, the show has evolved a bit. When I started it, I wanted to, I wanted to have um, kind of the opposite of small talk. I wanted to have big talk. I wanted to have conversations with people about what's really important to them and, and kind of shuck uh, being an entertainer in LA. Most, so much of podcasting and conversations are about the industry or people's story with their careers and stuff like that. And I was really like, I, I would love to just dive in and know people in this moment. Um, and, and so, and I've, I hosted so much and, and, um, and really felt more of a calling towards an interviewed style show. So, and I was listening to a lot of Oprah's super soul conversations. So that all culminated in me starting the podcast, but where it's evolved to and where my kind of mission has evolved to in this, I believe, you know, walking into a, a new era of masculinity and the way that we're kind of conditioning young boys around masculinity. Um, I see that as a result of the Me Too movement um, and this kind of shaking loose of, of, of the roots that have, you know, grown for centuries, um, these beliefs of, of the structure of what men are supposed to be. And, and it's really, so it's, yeah, it's a culmination of me too. And even BLM, just looking at systemic issues, the way that we are, it's like people are finally seeing that stuff is bigger. Stuff is, Stuff is conditioning. Uh, we are taught things in schools that were lies, or that you know uh, service a certain area of the of the population or the power structure. And so I, when I was kind of seeking um, something bigger than myself, something the, a purpose in my life more than just being an actor and honestly a struggling actor, it was um, it, it made a lot of sense for me to dive into this knowing where I'm from in the Midwest, kind of 
very, I would say just, uh, I'm, a, I'm a guy, a Midwestern guy who's, who's white and grew up in the 90s and was in a fraternity and, and I've been exposed, I've lived a bunch of different places in the country and I, I know men who, who have not been exposed to strong women, um, strong female role models and I haven't had a lot of those, uh, strong female role models. And so I just kind of saw this opportunity w- where there's a space where there aren't a lot of men talking or tackling tougher issues in gender relations. And so that's that's how I landed on this. And I think it's a good time now. I'm excited because I think that uh, these conversations are going to be much more welcome in a post-Trump world. I would agree with that, yes. And I, I do want to get back to the show, but I have to quickly ask someone else who also grew up in the 90s and in the Midwest. I I would say coincidentally enough, but there's quite a few uh, million people in there. So <laughs> there's, there's maybe, maybe not that big of a coincidence. Um, but <laughs> I was having this discussion with someone recently. Do you have a favorite one-hit wonder from the 90s? Um, Boy, I got a lot. I got a lot of them. Um. I do. Hold on, because I have <laughs> I literally have a playlist of all my favorite um, '90s one-hit wonders, and I'm just gonna just gonna take a peek at it. Um, I would say, and I'm sure this is always that thing where it's like you know they had other songs, but I really think um, uh, there's there's a song called uh, "Tomorrow" by the band Silverchair. I haven't heard Silverchair's name in a hot minute. <laughs> yeah. Well, as since probably uh, the 90s. <laughs> um, and then the other one would be in the just, I would just throw this one in there. It just, 1999, it just got in there. But uh, Tal Bachman's She's So High. Love it. Love which it. is an incredible song by the son of an incredible musician, Randy Bachman. And, uh, Tal Bachman was like Canadian Artist of the Year. All this stuff. Never heard from him again. Too bad. Yeah, still a banger though. It's a, oh my God. Oh, I mean, yeah. the, I, the music video was really cool. It was very whimsical. It was like a pre, um, the woman in it was kind of a pre-Manic Pixie Dream Girl in the yes. music video for She's So High. Yes. Guys, look that up. You'll see, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but anyways, good question. Nice, nice. Yes, I, I enjoy both of those selections. Uh, I'll give a nod to one I, I recently heard again and was like, yes, this song is so good. Uh, Flagpole Sitta by Harvey Danger, uh, which just uh, more people probably know it as the uh, I'm not sick, but I'm not well song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because uh, I was like, I don't, I, don't know that. Yeah, but- <laughs> I don't know that, but I love that song. That was in probably at least three teen movies from the 90s or early 2000s. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's the barometer, I think, for... Uh, for any kind of success for the 90s and 2000s is how many of those teen movies. Like if you're in every single American Pie, you're probably doing uh, quite fine, even though those movies have their fair share of problems. But yeah. Banger no, that's, soundtracks. That's true. If you sure. show up in, in more than one 90s movie, you got a hit song. I think the Cranberries probably. Mm. I mean, I would guess the Cranberries dreams maybe takes the cake for that age group. Teen 90s movies or coming of age 90s movies that's got to be the song yeah surely there's been some kind of analysis done I, I think there actually because, has been yeah. I think that when when 
I believe her name was Shirley. Funny enough, uh, I, <laughs> when when the lead singer of the Cranberries died, I think they somebody did a video about how Dreams was just everywhere when that came out in nice. movies. Yeah. Also, also a fantastic song. It's a although good, it's a good one. I mean, I I, I still make few, I yeah. still make mixes. I make my, my playlists, and my '90s playlist is probably my most beloved. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. There's just some. There's some. Yeah, bangers on here. Uh, magical. Okay, we could we could certainly go down this road sure. all day, but I do want to get back to your show. Fastball <laughs> live, Green Day, No Doubt, uh, Cardigans, Collective Soul, Soundgarden, Last Morissette, Seal. All right, we might need to put a link to this in <laughs> in the show notes, so we'll That's follow up for that for sure. Anyways, <laughs> got him out of there. Got him out of the system. Ah, uh, magical, magical. Now you were talking about how in a post-Trump world these conversations and uh, topics are hopefully better received and people are more willing to talk and listen which I think is also a key element to this of not just <laughs> that's, I think shouting that's the number in all one, caps. Yes, number, that's, the number, <laughs> that's the first part. Um, but it is still, you know, a lot of topics and areas where people maybe aren't as comfortable chatting about it as they would be, say, 90s music. Uh, <laughs> maybe a little harder to like, I don't want to use the word pry, but kind of pry stuff out of people sometimes. So your experience as a host, I'm sure, helps with that. But what makes for a good interview and having conversations that are are worth getting out there. I think if people feel seen and that they're not part of some other person's show, I think if uh, the, the best interviews are when someone is comfortable enough to share something that maybe they've never shared, but most of all, really uh, peel back the layers, the masks, whatever you want to call it, that they usually put on when they're on camera or on mic or or just around people who they don't know that well. And so the best interviews are when it can it can not only be comfortable and and kind of casual to a certain degree, but I think what I like doing on the show is digging in and and making people kind of formulate these ideas about themselves and the world around them that is still from them but they're they're you know those kind of aha moments for yourself where you're like wow I'm kind of I'm really happy with the way I put together that idea I think those are really fun I think you know the interviews where people um feel like they kind of made little connections and breakthroughs and and uh um and connections with themselves Absolutely. And then on the flip side of it, have you ever had, whether with this show or, or any of your hosting uh, past, you know, past hosting experiences, have you ever had someone get so upset that they left? Or is that just something a, we get to see on? No, on like yeah, reels? I've never, <laughs> I, I am pretty good at not getting to that point. I don't, I'm not here for a gotcha situation. I think, um, cause that's usually what it is. People, People are just, they're so uncomfortable and they feel, honestly, they, like I've, I've been in situations, um, lunches with people or meetings with people where I felt like leaving. And it's usually because I'm, there's been some rug pulled out from under me where someone is, has either not lied, but has either, has either kind of done a little deceit or something, things are not as they seem 
or or someone is being kind of unnecessarily cruel or something like that. So I don't, I've never had that situation. Um, and even when people are wary about uh, the interview afterwards, which does happen where people go, I, I think I said too much about this and um, I'm worried about the way this came up, at least for me. And it's, you know, it's, you know, not journalistically the best way to go about it, but I do give people the benefit of the doubt and go, hey, like, I think it was fine, but if you want to listen to it, here you go. And uh, and if you have really have a problem with it, I'll cut that out. And I think 99% of the time in all of the shows or, or interviews I've done, people always end up going, you know what, I'm going to just stick with what I said in the moment. Um, because it's you know, you want to, pe- people should want to stick to their word. If they know they're on camera or on, on the mic, uh, it's good to, <laughs> they, sh- they should know what they're doing, you know? Yeah. I think that's a, a common issue. I've certainly run into that a few times too, where after the fact people are like, mm, actually, can I not say that? Uh, and I was like, but you did like, yeah. if it's, you know, if it's something like an NDA and you like accidentally, blurted something out like that I can understand and that did happen one time and I was like you should probably have that buttoned up a little more um but I I think for the most part you should have an idea of of what you can and cannot say and you know maybe it's nerves that pop in with there but I think if it's not you know anything like incriminating then yeah leave it in it's it's more authentic and it's and it's I, I understand it's tricky sometimes. Uh, I've had you know higher profile people on on shows and stuff like that, and they they get worried about phrasing, which is natural. I mean, especially now we are in a we're in a time where you can you can say one thing wrong and really get in deep shit, and um, and and that sort of justice has its place, um, and and is taking you know picking up the slack for a criminal justice system uh, and a systemic system of justice that uh, um, is not, you know, helping the little guys and gals. And so, so I get that. I get, I get being wary of things. And, um, but also what's important is, is to be able to look at maybe a mistaken wording or, or phrasing and apologize for things like that wholeheartedly. And this is actually a part of um, you know, down the road, one of my big goals is, is promoting this idea of, um, restorative justice, which applies to victims of sexual assault, as well as, um, saying the wrong thing or saying something racist or, or something, uh, not empathetic to, or punching down and restorative justice. It's this idea that, um, especially in the criminal justice world, uh, uh where it's being applied you know, more directly, um, through, uh, different types of psychologists and therapists and caseworkers and stuff like that. It's, it's this idea of justice where there is a collaboration between the victim and the perpetrator to find a sentence or, uh, some sort of a, of a, you know, end game for the relationship that serves both parties, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily like the victim saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm the judge and jury and I think you should go to jail for 30 years for what you did to me. It's more about, okay, you, you did this thing to me. You're a human being. Human beings can change. Human beings, um, 
have the right to growth. I can empathize with that. Um, let's look at what is fair to both of us um, and, and find a middle ground. And it's a lot more, it's, it's, it's seen as a much more satisfying um, kind of resolution for victims and of course for perpetrators, but really for victims because there's more control uh, especially in circumstances that the original crime or, or, or you know, trespass or whatever it was, uh, the original thing, you know, did not give the victim as much control. And so um, it's almost, you know, handing more control to someone who kind of deserves it in that circumstance. So that's that's the idea of um, restorative justice. And it's we're going to we're going to you're going to be hearing it. We're all going to be hearing it a lot, I think, in the next 10 years. Um, as this alternative, as, as the criminal justice system does shift in the wake of defund the police and, and, and everything like that. So it's a very cool idea. I think, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. I feel like I've, I've heard rare instances of something like that. And it's, I'm, I'm trying to think now if this is ever like, I, I know I've seen it like in TV shows, uh, as kind of like, a you know, we don't want to put someone away for you know a, a fairly minor crime in the grand scheme of things and maybe they'll come to some kind of agreement I'm, i know i'm like positive i've seen it in a simpsons episode to comedic <laughs> effect um and yeah i think it's a it, it is a very interesting alternative um to yeah some of these like real harsh penalties that come down for people that you know, probably, probably don't deserve them in a lot of cases. And it's, it's uh, an area that I, I'm excited to learn more about and kind of see how it grows, like you were saying, in the next 10 years. Um, and, you know, it's, it's certainly like, uh, I, I think if 2020 has taught us anything, it's to like, expect anything. Uh, and oh just when you think you've, you've hit the bottom or the wall or whatever you want to call it, worst. like there's, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's more, there's more to come. Um, and it's not all terrible. Like, it's just, you kind of got to look at things in, in different ways. And um, I think that's a great example of this. And it kind of ties nicely into something else that I wanted to chat about, which was your previous podcast. Um, explain things to me, which yeah. I, th- I think the title is pretty self-explanatory. Um, so my question is, what's the, f- the your favorite thing that you had explained to you? That's a great question. Um I, I mean, explain things to me if people don't know. It's it, I, I no longer do that podcast, um, but uh, it was bringing in experts and having them explain their jobs, and 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 it was a lot of what they did, and then kind of debunking myths about that job. So, I mean, a lot of people's favorite is the first episode, and it was a mortician. And honestly, I mean, it. it a lot of the things that were spoken about in a lot of these episodes just changed my view and did make me a mini expert, you know, and that was what was cool about it because we, I kind of got to know, now I know a bunch about, you know, um, seismology and the big one, you know, the big earthquake that's going to hit the West coast. And I know a lot more about, about mushrooms or, um, you know, how uh, lawyers or, uh, I mean, another favorite was, it just always, it's just kind of funny, like, it sticks in my head, like, there was a, we had a blood spatter analyst, and Ooh. I was just like, oh, so it's not splatter, the word is spatter, 
that just stuck in my head. But the mortician was great because this idea of death as something that is icky or we got to stay away from it and we're scared of it and 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 the way that we deal with death being this separate thing from life um is you know bullshit we have to embrace it and i it just really stuck with me she had this idea that is illegal but she you know we asked her why caitlin doty was, was her name um we asked her how she wanted to be buried or what she wanted to be done with her body. And she said, sky burial, which is when you put your body out in the woods and you let the animals and birds, uh, feast on you. And then you just, uh, disintegrate over, you know, the years you decompose. I guess that wasn't what I was thinking when I said my woe. I was expecting like getting shot into the sky or something, oh, but that's yeah. also See, that, that's also that, a woe. Yeah. That is that's what I thought it was initially too, because it's like yes, yeah, sky burial, like you would shoot your ashes into the sky. You know, it'd be like um, it would get on everybody, like uh, like in the Big Lebowski or something. But no, yeah. apparently it's allowing the birds of the sky to be your burial. Huh. Sounds kind of I mean, cool to me. It's like it's like planting yeah. yourself with the tree, those tree pod things, um, and I think we should be able to decide <laughs> legally uh, if we want that to be done. I mean, it's I think prob- people are worried about um, sanitation or whatever disease mm-hmm. or something, but I think that should be an option if you want it to be. Personally, yeah, yeah. Did you ever, from any of the people that you talked with, did you ever? feel so passionate that you're like, maybe this could be a career move down the line or did it never get to that? No, I mean, I was, I have always been very, very tunnel visioned about being in entertainment. Um, And so, yeah, at the time I was very set on acting. Um, But I mean, it, it's, it's a lovely thing because it, I think a lot of our listeners had helped out. We had a lot of young listeners. Um, and we actually, we had one person on twice. And that was Dr. Romani Dervasula, who's a therapist, psychologist who um, uh, kind of specialized in narcissism. And we had her on the show. And then we had her on again. And she told us the second time around that her whatever current um, assistant or graduate assistant or some sort of someone who worked for her had contacted her because they heard her on our podcast. And so that's cool. But um, I, it didn't, no, it didn't really make me rethink my path. It, but it definitely broadened my horizons about how incredible and how many more things there are outside of the entertainment industry. Because when you're in the entertainment industry and uh, you, you drink the Kool-Aid, you kind of think that you're the most important thing and city in the world. And that's not really true. Yeah, it's amazing. And this show has taught me the same thing of like how many different career paths there are out there. And if you can dream of something, then it's, I mean, tens of thousands of people are probably doing it already, but you can, you can always find a niche somewhere where you're kind of the unique creative one out of however many people there are. Um, But just like, and, and even just like some of the side hobbies that people have is always so fascinating to me. And I'm sure in quarantine life, people have uh, picked up even more. And I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't ask if you picked up any quarantine hobbies. Um, 
I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty basic one, but it is something that I've, I have not really committed to, uh, my entire adult life. And that's working out. Nice. Like I finally didn't have an excuse. And so up until, you know, the past month when I was moving, uh, I was working out four to five times a week for the first time in my life since high school. And so that, that was the new thing. Um, that and, and developing real feels just kind of became the thrust of my days. But yeah, it's, it's not cool. It's not, I mean, I have other <laughs> things I like to do that are fun, like playing drums. I know, are you a guitarist? Yes. Um, yes. And so, yeah, like playing music when I can, and I'm going to set up my drum set in a new place here, which is going to be fucking awesome. But, um, <laughs> and so that'll be, you know, quarantine's not over. So I think that'll be my, my next quarantine, um, thing is taking drums back up. But, uh, yeah, no, nothing, n- not like, I mean, I guess cooking a little bit more, but I was already doing that. So yeah, nothing, no baking bread for me, just baking my body that's it <laughs> yeah i feel like the bread making was a real uh, a real hot item in march and april and then it just fell off a cliff um <laughs> but you know kudos, i did i didn't go down that route either but kudos to everyone who did and i think drums are a terrific just like a, a stress relief uh like way more than playing guitar is but i mean any any kind of music is fantastic and highly recommend Anyone who's been thinking about it, do it, do it. It's so fun. It's so fun. I, it's ne- there's yeah. never been a better time to. There be really has musician. it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I I actually uh, grew up playing. I say playing very loose air quotes here of playing drums. Uh, my mom bought me a snare drum, and then we just progressively, like every Christmas yeah. or birthday, would add a piece to it. Um, and then recently she was like, "You're you're not playing these. Like they're taking up space in the house. I'm going to sell them." I'm like, "All right, I guess that's fine." But uh, I was I was kind of getting the itch a few weeks how, ago, and I'm like, how far did you get with the adding to your set? Did you get to like woodblock, uh, Glockenspiel, Gong kind of I did territory? Have, I did have a cowbell, okay, uh, good. which Very was important. was a like you know that had to be uh, after seeing the SNL bit of uh-huh. needs more cowbell. I think that that really solidified it. I was kind of on the fence, and then I'm like, no, cowbell's too much fun. I have to have that. But it was pretty sizable. Let's see if I. Definitely there was a bass drum and um, two toms. I don't think I got to a floor tom, um, but I had ride so cymbal, no hi-hat, and crash two, cymbal. Two toms over the over the bass, over the kick. You had yes. two, no, no floor. How many cymbals are we talking? This, and I'm sorry, folks. When drummers get together, this is what happens. <laughs> uh, how many cymbals are we talking here? We had, uh, we had the hi-hat, a ride, and a crash. I mean, that's all you need. And then, an important question, you got the cowbell. Where, where was the placement on that one? Mine was attached uh, to the kick drum, so it was kind of above my right knee was my, where my cowbell was placed. That was, I believe that's where mine was, too. I can't remember if it was to the kick or the, the snare had like a, a little claw thing that I was able to hang it on to, too. I think I started that at first, and then I was like, no, it's more secure. Uh, over the kick because yeah I think you need it you need it in an easy accessible place you don't want to be like ringing all over because I'm assuming you're probably hitting a cowbell several times in succession if you're using it you're not gonna just give it like a one (laughs) one smash so and and when you got it on the snare then then you're almost making you're hitting the snare at the same time at 
relatively, you're hitting the cowbell. If it's mounted on a snare, it will create the snare type sound, which is not what you want. You want a clean cowbell sound. Um, so that makes sense. But you, 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 you troubleshot it and you figured it out and, you know, that sounds great. I wish I could go back and, and, you know, jam two drummer style with you back, uh, back in the day. How, how young are we talking about? Uh, I think I was 13 when I started 12 or 13 um, and, and kind of just grew it throughout high school. And then I, as, as we've discussed, we both went to school at Miami. So I was out of the Midwest and then I lived in LA for a couple of years and now in Austin. So have not been a a full-time resident of uh, Chicago in about, oh goodness, 14, 15 years now. So the drums were just collecting dust, but I, I'd, I'd like to think at least my parents would, would rock out on them a couple times a year, even though that certainly was not the case. Yeah. <laughs> would have been great. No, they just growled at it and thought about how much better it would be if it wasn't there. <laughs> but our sweet people, I'm sure, and we're like, well, they are Joey's and maybe he'll want them or something like that. That's, um, that's very sweet of them. Yeah, they held on to them for much longer than was required, and I would have expected. So, I, I sold my original kit for gas money to drive to Los Angeles. That was oh, wow. that's my kind of classic story. Did it get you there, or did you have did you like peter out along the way? Ga- um, gas money wise, uh, I think it was probably enough. Nice. I think it was probably enough. Nice. That would have been extra devastating. I think if you. <laughs> I mean, that, that was Vegas all the money I like. had. <laughs> I mean, uh, after going to school at Miami, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm very excited about this possible student loan debt uh, forgiveness <laughs> situation under Biden because uh, 11 years later, Braddy's got some, still got some debt. <laughs> and they're still asking for support for current oh my students god yes i told i they don't call me anymore i i <laughs> i i pleasantly told them off enough times yeah maybe i just need to do it a little more i feel like i'll still get the calls every once in a while certainly was getting a few texts during election season uh, and i i still maybe maybe this decade will be the one where there's a way to inform people that you've already voted so that they take you off the list of like, hey, who are you going to vote for? I'm like, well, it's already happened. So please, <laughs> I don't need a text right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as I, I, I've done some calling, I've done a little bit of calling, um, did it for Lizzie Warren, did some calling um, and uh, during the primary. And it's definitely, you get, you reach some people who are like, please take me off the list. You've called five <laughs> times. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. Uh, it's very easy for the people running those things, the texting and the calling to uh, to fuck it up and to not mark you correctly. So now being on both sides of it, I do empathize. But uh, yeah, it'd be good. It'd be good to opt out quicker. Yeah, I think I, I've, I'm fine with uh, like I, I'm never going to blame a caller or a texter for it. Um, but yeah, I think it's just like when it's when you've already voted, I'm like, well, there's nothing like nothing you can say would sway me because it's already happened. So Wait, what you didn't vote uh, three, four times. <laughs> was I supposed to? You, well, I mean, you can, I mean, oh. well, I, Democrats can, I know they, that that's true. 
Ugh, well, I, I blew it. So my, <laughs> my apologies to my, uh, my fellow, fellow voters out here. I didn't know. I didn't know. Yeah, we're apparently allowed, allowed to vote multiple times. This is what I hear. <laughs> now, something that I like to ask musicians, and uh, you have the benefit, I guess, of having both music and acting experience. So you can pick your poison here. But I always like to hear, what's one of the worst gigs you've had? Uh, acting for sure. Cause I have had much, much less, uh, music gigs. Um, worst acting gig, um, was, this was incredible back when I was a non-union actor. This was my last non-union thing I ever did because it, it just totally just pissed me off so much. And, uh, actors beware if you're, you know, signing up for non-union gigs, they can really just do whatever they want and screw around and change the rules of, of what's happening. But basically I auditioned and had been cast as one of the supporting, you know, characters in a feature film that was going to be shot very quickly over the course of three days at this big mansion up in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, actually maybe it was Brentwood. Um, and so very exciting and it was non-union. So I was just like, well, you know, whatever, I have a bunch of scenes and they'll be really good for my acting reel. Um, and so it's one of those things where there's not a lot of details, but they're like, meet here at, you know, 9am and bring three changes of clothes and we'll figure it out. So I park on the side of the road, meet in a parking lot. And then there's these, uh, there's like a, a van and I'm like, okay, so this is kind of professional. There's like a minivan that's driving us up to the location at this, um, at this mansion and I'm meeting, you know, you talk with your fellow actors and stuff like that and you see somebody, you know, and that's cool. And there's all these extras. It's a really big production. And slowly you're, once we get to the location, there's very little food, but you're like, okay, that kind of happens. And then slowly you're just waiting and then you're in holding and you're waiting and, and the hours tick by and I'm getting paid, I think maybe two fifty for three days, like nothing, but it's, it was a good opportunity. And I read the script and I met the writers on set, but I'm meeting all these people and we're just not shooting, not shooting, not shooting. And we end up, um, not shooting at all, all day. And there's like a hundred people there and they apologize and they go, we'll, we'll make it up tomorrow. So I come the next day and they say that we shoot one scene of mine they shoot a couple more other scenes and they say, okay, we're running out of time. Uh, change of plans. We're going to turn this, we're going to shoot a Doritos crash the Super Bowl commercial with the rest of our time at the house. <laughs> and so, so then they start doling out roles ran at random. And then they go, okay, uh, you know, you'll be on camera for sure. If you uh, want to jump in the pool. And I'm like, I guess. So I jump in the pool. I don't even have a swim trunk. I just jump in the pool in my underwear. And they they somehow, they have like a big Dorito suit. And I'm like, wait a second. They literally, this wasn't, this wasn't supposed to be a film shoot. They are a completely fucked production that is just, was like back pocket. We're in just kind of this idea that, oh, we're going to make a Crash the Super Bowl commercial. And then I didn't go the last day and made them pay me my $250. But it was one of those circumstances where these are two, these were two 12 hour days where I shot one scene 
and then and then sh- jumped into a pool in front of a guy in a Doritos costume after the promise of being like this kind of supporting role in this indie comedy. And it was it was so disheartening and so disappointing. Um, you know, it was just it was just very funny. It's like, oh, okay. Um, and if you guys don't know what Crash the Super Bowl commercials are, they're kind of this thing that everybody does when they're non-union because it's the you know there's a promise of a million dollar deal if they pick your commercial, but it's like the most low brow kind of crappy thing to do as a uh, up and coming actor creator. And, uh, and so that was among the worst gigs. I mean, there's worse ones where you're not getting paid and everything's awful, but that one was egregious in particular. Did I'm assuming the answer is no, because I don't recall seeing a commercial like this, but <laughs> was this picked as a as a winner for one of the Super Bowls? I mean, not only was it not picked, I don't <laughs> think they even finished it. I don't think they finished it. I never, they sent me, they couldn't send me the commercial. They sent me the shot that I was in, in case I wanted to use that in my reel, which I had to beg someone for. <laughs> and it's, you know, but you can't use no lines and jumping in a pool like that's not even worthwhile but when you're up and when you're starting out you need anything on camera and i was like i guess i'll take it um but yeah it was uh and then they're not feeding you i mean it's just it it is a very it's a tough it's a of course everybody knows that being an actor is tough but it's 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 a really deceptive industry because it just does use people um and makes forces people who don't have money to work for free for years with the promise of maybe some exposure. And of course those those you know dream scenarios work and and happen and people are discovered, but there is a uh, as my friend uh, Evan Watkins says there there is a kind of a sleight of hand, there's a magic that that LA has that has kind of gone away with COVID that I think people are starting to see a little bit. Uh, me included. Although I hope I don't sound too cynical about it because I've had a lovely time, but it's um, uh, it's it's just interesting to see it after you know my experiences ten years in the business. Yeah, and I think too from again, this is from a, a much less involved uh, space, but just you know conversations with friends and and kind of seeing it as like a, a fly on the wall. Sometimes it it's the sleight of hand is a good way to put it, like. It's the particular way someone will phrase something where it's like, oh, technically, like, I didn't say anything that's not true. It's just (laughs) like, you know, you'd obviously take it another way. Um, And it's just, yeah, it is a lot of uh, a lot of shenanigans, um, to put it mildly. Yeah, taking advantage, which like I I have also had people work for me for free, but it's when I'm working for free, too. I mean, like, there's a reasonable, again, collaboration. There's there there's a. There's a point where you can be honest with people and and give you know state your piece, and not have to trick people to work with you. And that um, you know, it goes for dating too, not having to trick people. But it's uh, yeah, it's just one of those things that that you become aware of the more experiences you have with it. But um, but yeah, it's uh, that was the that was the one. And I said I'm I'm going to join the union somehow and never do this again. And I did, and it was. Union work is much better. 
Nice. Well, I'm glad it spurred action, even if it was terrible in the moment. And a great story. I enjoyed that very much. Thank you. And we'll we'll move from non-union to uh, a, a similar topic, I think, of a, a musical group that has struggled, uh, really didn't see a lot of success in their heyday, which is the Beatles. And this is uh, a question that I also like to ask all of my guests is, what's a question you wish you were asked more frequently? And you... I, I know I read this recently of how many songs the Beatles have put out ever, but what is your favorite one out of the, I don't know, two, it's like 200 something, like two, 230 or so songs that the Beatles have done. What is number one favorite on Brad's list? So what's, what's cool is I just did a big drive, a big, long, several day drive. Um, and I just decided I could listen to a book or a podcast, but I'm just going to start with the, f- I have a playlist of the Beatles that's all their music in chronological order, and I'm just going to listen to them without skipping any songs, which I normally do because they have a lot of they have a lot of shitty songs in their earlier albums. <laughs> and so I just push through, and um, I've been a Beatles fan. The, my earliest memory as a human was watching the movie Help, and um, and so my if I were to pick one favorite Beatles song, it would be From Help. Um. And it's it's uh, it's one that people don't talk about as much, but I think is is worthy um, and a beautiful song. And it's um, the song "I Need You" by George Harrison. Nice. And so, e- even though technically, I think while George Harrison is part of the Beatles, picking a George song as a favorite Beatles song, I don't think counts as much because the Beatles, the heart and soul of the Beatles, is the Len McCartney thing. Um, but. The song that I think about the most or that I like to sing the most is I Need You. And um, and so that's, if, if I could only listen to one more Beatles song ever again, that would be that. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, I think George is certainly less revered among the group, but I mean, certainly a step over Ringo still. So he's, there's <laughs> Leonard McCartney very high up. <laughs> George it's Harrison a really, is like, their he's, dynamic he's there, is incredible. Yeah. And also, I think people don't quite talk about it enough when they talk about the Beatles and listening to the early tracks. George, his solos are really well done. He's a, he's, he, he, I mean, he composed those solos in almost every song. And so he, he's the quiet Beatle and he's very sweet and all of that, but he was a hell of a guitarist. And, um, you know, people talk about Paul's bass and John's songwriting and all that stuff, but George is a, he's, he's a good, good guitarist. Yeah, he can write some great stuff for sure. Well, Brad, you're almost off the hook, but we always <laughs> like to wrap up with a top three. And I also usually like to to let you choose. And I, as a, a cheese aficionado, uh, well, I say that like I know a lot about cheeses. I just enjoy eating them. But you specifically called out vegan cheeses. So what are your top three vegan cheeses? So um, when, I, when I think about vegan... So I grew up in Wisconsin, America's Dairyland. Uh, cheese is my favorite food my whole life. My parents, to quiet me down as a kid, would give me a slice of, you know, Kraft American in my hand. That was how I grew up. And um, made the switch about five years ago to go, you know, cut dairy out uh, for multiple reasons. But one of them being that, you know, the discovery that we technically 
aren't supposed to be ingesting dairy. It's meant for baby cows and not for humans. And so um, I stopped. I lost 10 pounds after like a month of not eating dairy and then had to kind of figure out a replacement. And the best thing about the easiest way to kind of get a more, you know, vegan leaning lifestyle is to replace your favorite foods. And so slowly I found these favorites. And so my top three, my number three is a um, sliced cheese called chow, C-H-A-O. And that was my kind of um, gateway cheese um, because it tasted so close to real. And so the chow kind of sliced cheese, you can find that in most grocery stores. It would be my number three. My number two um, would be a um, a cream cheese, like a, a it's actually a pub cheese, um, and that's a Miyoko's Roadhouse Cheddar, and that's the closest. It tastes incredible with a cracker. It's the type of thing that I grew up eating. You know, pub cheese out of a out of a plastic container on a Ritz. Um, so Miyoko's is a great vegan dairy company. And then number one is a local LA place called Misha's. And, uh, that would be, uh, Misha's, um, locks or Misha's sorry, S A R I. And they're both cream cheeses that work for crackers or for bagels or for toast, um, avocado toast. Those would be my top three. And, 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 you know, if anybody's scoffing at the idea of a vegan cheese, that they could never stop eating cheese. Again, I grew up on it and I just feel so much better. My body feels better. My stomach feels better. And uh, it's worth at least trying some of these because the technology behind, just the food technology behind some of these vegan options are, are really incredible and just plain healthier. So those are my top three. Fantastic. I I don't think I've explored vegan cheeses very much but i think i can i i agree with the how you feel better i've cut out uh cow's milk um and and yeah it's a similar sort of like i don't think we realized how bad a lot of things we grew up on are (laughs) growing up just because you know there wasn't science around it and there weren't as much uh people researching alternatives and things like that but it is pretty spectacular to see what has already been created as alternatives, as substitutes, and what's coming on the horizon. Because I am—I feel like every month I'm just like, they did what with what? Like, that's super <laughs> impressive. <laughs> well, what kind of milk were you talking about? What was your replacement? Almond? Yeah, I typically go with almond. I've dabbled with oat and soy uh, as well. I did try pea milk for the first time recently, yeah. which was, it was pretty good. I, rec- I, I just tried a macadamia. It. It's called nice. milkadamia. It's a great, great name. All right. All right. I might need to. That is a great name. And I I do reward great names for (laughs) (laughs) at least trying that. We'll we'll see if they they can uh, knock Almond off of the list. But that'll be be an update for next time. (laughs) Please, yes. (laughs) I mean, here's the top three best milks. There's enough alternative milks out there that you can have a top three. Uh, That is true. And probably by, by this time next year, we can get... Maybe even do a top 10, at least a top five. I, I would believe it. I think the milk technology, it's, it's, it's moving rapidly. It's a rapid thing. Excellent. I'm very neck excited Neck and neck with the it. vaccine, I think. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, Brad, thank you so much for hopping on and chatting. This was great. We covered, I think, maybe the the most extensive uh, net that any guest has ever had on here. So very appreciative of that. If people want to learn more about you, if they want to check out an episode of Real Feels, where can they find you? Uh, They can go to realfeels.com that's r-e-a-l-f-e-e-l-s dot com uh should find everything else but uh real feels on instagram twitter youtube but you can just go to realfeels.com and it'll it'll get you where you need to go that's that's all any of us can ask for (laughs) awesome well of course we'll also end with a bad joke as we always do and i'll even i even made it cheese themed based on the top oh cool Um, but i actually have an addiction to cheddar cheese But thankfully, it's only a mild one. Mm. Get after it today, people. (laughs) Lovely. I, I love cheese and cheesy jokes. 